Hello everyone, welcome to the Melting Pot podcast. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is as a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance, scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions along the way. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a high-quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at dominicmonkhouse.com. Today, I'm chatting to Daniel Marcus. He's in Mexico City. He's running a workshop there tomorrow and the day after. And most of the time, the audio is good, but he fades in and out. I did say to him partway through that if it faded out too badly, I'd get him to repeat himself. But actually, there's a couple of glitches and he comes back online. And I think you can still get the gist of what he's talking about. So apologies for the internet connection at Daniel's house in Mexico today. We chat about where he started and and Daniel had the number one trading platform in Mexico, rolled it up as a 26-year-old, raised $54 million, sold it to Santander, the dot-com bubble burst, and he popped out the other side and got into CEO coaching and CEO development, started the platform that he has today called Growth Institute with Vern Harnish, but was lucky enough to find somebody to take it through the sort of startup and grow up phases before he rejoined it as the CEO. And he's on a mission to impact the lives through education of millions of CEOs between now and 2040. And so we talk about the difference in online training and, and offline and coaching. And then we chat about how to hire, how to make great hires, some tips from Daniel on that what hiring A players might look like, what he would do if he went back in time, and then some book recommendations at the end. So fantastic discussion with Daniel today, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Hey, Dominique, thank you very much for inviting me uh, to your podcast. Happy to share some ideas with your audience. So I'm Daniel Marcos. I'm the CEO of the Growth Institute based in Austin, Texas. Uh, But most importantly, I'm an entrepreneur myself. I've been running my companies, and I've been a CEO in my company for the last 20 years. So I've learned a lot of what is to be in this seat. And then recently I began coaching other CEOs for the last 10 years. And I really enjoy it. I love to be on the coaching side and helping CEOs take their mindset to the next level so they're able to scale their company. I believe that scaling has to be first mental before it's physical. You have to be able to scale your mindset, your tools, your way of thinking, so you could then be able to scale your business. So I dedicate a lot of my time to that. Fantastic. And where are you speaking with us from today? So I'm in Mexico City today. Uh, that's what, where my parents live. Uh, I, I originally was born in Monterrey, Mexico. So where did you, where did you start your own entrepreneur journey? What... So I, I graduated from college in uh, engineering school here in Mexico, uh, in Monterrey precisely. And um, I remember when I was graduating my last two years, I was always talking about want to be an entrepreneur. And all my professors said, like, no, no, that's not for you. You have to, the best thing that could happen to you being an engineer is being a manager of a Japanese factory or something like that in Mexico. And I hated it. I really want to be an entrepreneur. 
So when I was a kid, I, I sold t-shirts and built an aquarium to sell fish in my parents' house. So I did a lot of things when I was young. And then during college, I was trying to start my new business. And my father was a little bit worried I was going to get distracted. So he told my brother, hey, try to get a job for your, for your brother so he won't get distracted again doing another company and losing money. So my brother helped me get a job at a brokerage house. And I worked as a trader for three years. And that really gave me a great solid foundation of how the financial markets work. So my last three years of college, I also worked as a trader uh, in a Mexican brokerage house. And we used to trade stocks all over the world. And that really gave me a, a worldview of how the financial markets were. So after that, through one of the relationships uh, that I had through the brokerage house, I went to Hong Kong. I lived in Hong Kong for two years, working in the Mexican consulate uh, there as the financial attaché of the Mexican consulate. And after two years, I was fascinated with what I was learning and, and seeing how Asia was growing. But I really said, this is my time and I need to be an entrepreneur. And the best place that I could be an entrepreneur is back in my home country. So I went back to Mexico and uh, I knew finance because I'd been trading for three years. So we built the first like e-trade or financial platform for the financial market in Mexico. And we started that. And after six months or a year of starting that, we got a call from an Argentinian competitor that he went to JP Morgan, tried to raise $50 million to be the leader in Latin America. And when he sat down with, with JP Morgan and said, hey, I want to be the leader in Latin America, so give me all this money so I could grow my company. And at that moment, he had operations in Argentina, Chile, and Venezuela. And JP Morgan said, hey, we love your story. We love you as an entrepreneur. We like everything things we, but you could not be the leader in Latin America if you don't have Mexico and Brazil. If you understand Latin America, Mexico and Brazil are way bigger economies than the rest of the, the region. They told him, hey, go and buy the biggest operator in Mexico, the biggest operator in Brazil, and we'll give you the money. So he calls me and said, I have $50 million to start operations in Mexico Monday. So you want to do it with me or against me? And I was like, I would love to do it with you. <laughs> I, I, I've raised $200,000 at that moment with my investors. So I, I joined uh, Wences. In this case, the company was called Patagon. Uh, he did the same with a really big player in Brazil. Uh, we went next week. We flew to New York, present ourselves as a one company now to JP Morgan. And we raised $53 million. Uh, and then we became, or we got the company to 1,200 employees. Uh, and we ended up selling it to Santander, uh, the 13th biggest bank in the world, for over $700 million. It was a great, great run. We built the third biggest Latin American internet company uh, in the 2000s. Fantastic. And you left before the dot-com bubble burst? So, interesting. We sold to Santander two days before the peak of the Nasdaq. Oh. So now we were a Santander company. Santander at that moment kept like 70% of the stock. The other 30% of the stock was owned by employees. And Santander said, I need to fund the operations. Now I own 70%. So when everyone was falling and having financial issues, we were funded by Santander. So we had a lot of financial stability uh, for two more years. And then after two more years, that's when things changed. And, and really Santander said, this is enough. I, I'm not going to continue supporting this. So we were there for two more years and then we all left in 2002. Oh, what? And they, they canned the whole thing in 2002? So they, they sold in Latin America. Uh, what we had that was most valuable is a bank in Brazil. As part of the deal, they gave us a bank in Spain and a bank in Germany that were both losing money. 
and they gave us the banks so we could convert them to online operations. And in the two years that we had them, we convert them into profitable operations. And then Santander kept those two. So they made their money with the bank in, in Spain and Germany. Okay. And then they divested in Latin America. Okay. Good stuff. I was 24 when I started, 26 when I was joining Santander. And I sold the company to Wences. So I really, I was 26 when I became a CEO. And I had a budget of like 10 or $15 million a year. And I had no idea what it was to be a CEO. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you a story. This is awesome. And I, and I, no one really thinks they're going to be a CEO when they're building a company. They're talking about the product and the market and how much money they're going to make. But they never say, oh, I'm going to be the CEO of this company. So when we started, we were four college friends. We went to a coffee shop to discuss and agree on building the business. And we discussed like three or four hours. We agreed how much money was, everyone was going to put and what was the strategy and everything. And one at the end said, okay, let's give everyone a job description, a job position. So the guy on my left said, hey, I worked at Mary Lynch for the last two years. So I'll be in charge of finance, the product and the finance of the company. So, okay, great. The guy in front of me said, I studied electrical engineering in college. So I'll be the CTO. Perfect. And the guy to my right said, well, my father has a company that organizes concerts and I help him organize the concerts. So I know something about sales and marketing. So I'll be head of sales and marketing. Great. And they look at me and said, and what are you going to do? And I kind of baffled for a minute. It's like, wow, they, yeah, the three important things of the business are already covered by them. And they're much stronger than me in the three things. And then I'll say, okay, great. I'll be the CEO. <laughs> and everyone looked at me and like, what? And I was like, yeah, once one has to take decision in the company and once has to act as the leader. So I'll be the CEO. And they look at each other like, like this is not what they had envisioned or planned. But then they said like, well, sounds coherent. And that's the way we started. That's the way I became a CEO of a company. And in the next uh, year or so, I fired two out of the three. They stayed as stockholders and made their money as stockholders but they, I remove them as operating persons. I really believe there's a really big difference of being an operating of your business and being an owner of your business. And I came to both of them and said, hey, with the salary that I pay you, I could get in the market on someone that is better prepared and has the capabilities that I need as a CEO for run the department. So I need you to go and I'm going to use your salary to hire someone else. And it's, I think that's really interesting because so often you see particularly startups and they're a bit stuck because they think income, equity, and control are all the same thing. And they're three completely different things. And whatever your decision, as you found, whatever your decision at the beginning, just think about those three things as separate things and, and manage them as three separate things. Correct. So we, we do a lot of work there. As an example, I've been called by family businesses. And they called me and said, hey, my grandfather did the business. Then they gave it to the three sons and daughters. And now we have six grandkids running the company and it's a mess help us understand who's the one that is really adding value and who's not you have to really divide your hat of being an operator and being an employee of a company and being the owner indeed a company just a quick story so when i when we sold santander we were 26 27 and got some cash in so we did a small angel fund probably a million and a half dollars to invest in companies and we invested in a company and six months later it was clear that the entrepreneur was not really operating well. So another of the investors and myself came to the board meeting and said, hey guys, 
here's a plan how to run the company without the entrepreneur. We really believe the entrepreneur is not doing what, is, what the company needs. So if you vote with us, we'll remove the entrepreneur as the CEO, we'll take control. And if you vote with him, I'll appreciate you buy us back because we really don't like the way things are going. And with all the investors, we had majority on the company. The rest of the investors voted with us. So we fired the entrepreneur and the entrepreneur was really mad. And I said, hey, don't get mad. There's one thing to be the founder and have stock. Yeah. And the other thing is to be the operator. You could stay as a stockholder and I strongly recommend you stay as a stockholder. You have a lot of stock and your stock is going to be worth a lot. And the guy kind of got mad and he shouted and all that. And he decided to keep his stock. The company today sells 15 times more than we used to sell uh, 16 years ago when we took over. And the entrepreneur is really happy. His stock is worth a lot of money. So I, I, I really believe you have to understand if you're the best operator or not. Well, and also, I think the type of person who starts a company, if you aren't prepared to learn and develop, the job running a business when it gets past 12 people is different from when you started. And it's different again when you get past sort of 35 and then 70 and then, a hundred. you know, it's there's all these stages, aren't there? And And if you're in it for the money, your best decision might be to have somebody else run the company. Indeed. I'll tell you a quick story on Growth Institute. When we started, uh, Vern and I uh, agreed on, on building Growth Institute. And in that case, I was, I was uh, just a coach. I was just coaching and, and I was doing pretty good financially coaching. And I said, hey, Vern, the best way we could fund this is get someone to run it. And you and I continue to do coaching. And with the coaching, send money instead of raising investor money. And he said, I agree with you. And, and at the start, there's a lot of hand-holding that you have to do. And there's not that much revenue. So he said, what do you recommend? And I said, hey, I have a really good friend that I trust, blindfolded that he's going to do a great job. Let me ask him to come as a co-founder and for him to run it. And Vern said, great. So we brought in Juan Gonzalez, a good friend of mine living in Austin. And I said, hey, Juan, we have this opportunity. Do you want to run it? And he said, yeah. So he came in as a third co-founder. And I was traveling all over the world doing coaching. And Juan used to call me and said, hey, send me a check of 10000 to pay payroll and send me a check of this. And Vern and I were sending money uh, for Juan to run the operation. And it worked great because at the beginning, the amount of hours that I was spending coaching was generating more revenue than the hours I spent operating. And then after the company went through stage one, stage two, Juan called me and said, hey, this is now the right time for you to come back. So now come back and now the company has enough revenue to be able to finance your your life and then come come back in and they came back in so in growth institute whoever really took the decision and did the scale on stage one stage two uh was one and we're 100 in debt to him that he took the hardest stages of the company and really make it afloat and, and made it a success and when you talk about that stage one and stage two how many stages are there and what do you how do you just how do you how do you define them i'll be happy to send you a link so people could download a powerpoint uh, or a PDF with all the stages that we have. But we believe there's four stages in a company, and we call it the startup, the grow-up, the scale-up, and then the fourth stage, that's when you dominate your industry. I still don't have a, a nice name, but the message is that's when you start dominating an industry. And I talk usually on stages based on the amount of employees that you have. And people say, hey, give me revenue. And I was like, revenue is very different. And I'll give you an example why revenue is so different. In the U.S., the average revenue per employee a year of a mid-market company is around $100,000 to $120,000 a year. 
So if you have 10 employees, you should be doing between million, million two in revenue. In Mexico, very similar percentages of companies in the world, but the revenue is half. The market in a country like Mexico, any place in Latin America, uh, Southeast Asia, or Africa, the systems doesn't work as well. The economy is not as strong as somewhere in the US or, or in Europe or so. And the man hours are less productive. So usually the average revenue per employee a year, it's around 50 to 60,000 a year. So it's exactly half of the US. So one to five employees in the US, you should be doing half a million, 300 to half a million. In Mexico, Latin America, it's gonna be probably around 150, 250. So we always talk about stages based on the amount of employees. And one more thing about employees. The amount of employees that you have, it's really the complexity of your operation. One to five, you could be their boss of everyone and, and delegate and spending the time and doing the work. Second stage, what we call the grow up, uh, is like the adolescent stage. 16 to 15 employees, still everyone reports to you, but you start with your first line of defense, your first managerial line. And that stage is really, really difficult. We believe that stage two, that's where the entrepreneur ages the most, and you have the most financial trouble growing through your company. And then stage three, we call the scale-up, and we call it the scale-up because that's the right stage for you to scale. The stage one and stage two, that's kind of the build-up, and then stage three, that's when you begin scaling. And imagine the stage of a company, like the stage of a human being. You're a baby, a kid, adolescent, and an adult. You prepare between kid and the baby and adolescent to really be someone that adds to the community, that adds to the market. And you begin adding once you become an adult and 18 or 20 years old. And the first stages are when you're preparing. Yeah. Same thing with your company. Stage one and stage two, you're preparing to really be able to add. And then stage three, that's when you're really ready to add. And the biggest mistake we see in stage one, stage two, is entrepreneurs want to scale the company prematurely. And they try to raise all this venture capital money and, and put all this money. Instead of spending the time learning and doing the right systems and procedures, they believe that with money they could buy growth. And they make a lot of mistakes on stage one, stage two. And then stage four, it's above 200, 250 employees. And that's when a company really begins dominating an industry, has a market percentage, and that's the first time you've been talking about market share. Hey, I have 5% of the market, I want to get to 7 or 8%. Once you're on stage three, everything you do, you're usually taking clients from someone else. Up to stage three, you get the early adopters and the people that are testing you for the first time, and they're what they call crossing the chasm, right? Stage one, stage two, so the adopter stage three is crossing the chasm, really getting to the mass market. And then stage four is really using the mass market capacity that you have to really be able to add a lot of clients into your company, into your business. And so how, when, uh, when you took back or started working at the Growth Institute full time, how, when was that and how big, how big did it got? We were doing probably a million, million two uh, that I came full time to the company. And I was working all my nights in the first two stages, but Juan was the one really leading the day-to-day operations. And Juan was talking to clients all the time and doing all the hard work on stage one, stage two. And then when we were around million, million two, now we said, hey, we're, we're ready. We already found, we already understand our business model. We already have tested our classes and how we run. We got accredited. 
the relationship with our thought leaders is really strong. Now it's time to raise money and start scaling. And that's when Juan called and said, hey, now we need you to come back and, and really put a lot of uh, time in this. And that was really stage three. And for me, and I could, the way you, you said it earlier, we're sometimes good for some stages and we're really, really bad for some. I think I'm really good for stage one. I'm lousy for stage two. In stage two, you have to be extremely disciplined and you cannot be frugal and spending money. You have to be extremely good with money. And I'm terrible with money. I'm great generating cash. I'm terrible keeping cash. So on stage two, what you need is someone that is extremely, extremely disciplined on how they spend money. And Juan, he is a rock on how he takes decisions on how to spend money. So the right leader on stage two was really Juan to make sure that we conserve the cash that we had to be able to go from stage two to stage three. And now stage three, that's when you begin testing more things, that's when you have more cash coming into the company, you have a stable clientele, and that's when you begin testing more things on how to scale the company and take it to the next level. Very good. So the Growth Institute, for those people who are listening who've never heard of the Growth Institute, what does it do? What's your, what's your purpose? What are you trying to achieve in the world? So what we have found, and, and this is really of me being an entrepreneur for 26 years, is um, there's a lot of great training and support for startups. There's a lot of great training and support for big corporations. There's very few support for mid-markets. And the mid-markets, we're a weird kind of, we're too big to work with the small companies and we're too small to be, work with the big ones. We're into this very aggressive stage of growth, we have a lot of ups and downs. So very few people have the patience to stay with mid-markets. And we said, hey, there's a lot of thought leaders out there that usually make their money with the big corporations that they would love to serve the mid-markets. They just don't have the structure, the time to do it. So why don't we partner with them to bring their methodologies to the mid-markets in a price and format that makes sense? And our BHAG, our dream, is to help 10 million leaders of mid-market companies be able to scale their impact in their company and reduce the drama of the operation. You know, being a coach of mid-market companies, how much drama they have. And we believe if you do the right thing and you really build systems and procedures that help you run your company, you will significantly reduce the drama. And let me here give you an example. I come to companies and ask them, hey, show me your systems. And I say, well, this is my accounting system and this is my production system and my customer support system. And I'm like, great, now show me your CEO system. And they look at me like, like they don't understand the question, or I'm from Mars, and I'm like, like, show me your system. Like, how do you operate as the CEO of the company? And they say, well, well, I just operate. And I'm like, how do you take decisions? If you have a system and a model and a technology to run every department of your business, being the CEO, how you take decisions, the strategy, you have to have a system. And they kind of look at me like they've never thought about it. And they say, well, I have a board and advisors and, and they kind of stick things and glue ideas, but they don't have an operating system that runs. For me, scaling up from Bernard Harnish is the framework of how to scale. But that's really just a framework. And imagine you say, I'm going to build a sailboat. The framework of the sailboat, that's scaling up. But then you have to put sails and an engine and everything on top of that. And that's where you bring technologies like, or models like top rating to hire and retain better people, and Jack Daly on how to really build a strong sales team, 
and David Bimon Scott of marketing, or Salim Ismail on how to see the future and do a company exponential, and all these kind of things that really add on. So we go with the thought leaders that we think are the best in their industry for mid-market companies and bring their content online in a format and price that makes sense for a mid-market company. Very good. And your goal was how many million again? So 10 million liters by and, 2040. And 2040. So today we've trained 43,000 executives from 10,000 different companies in 64 countries already. We have paid students in 64 countries. And here's what people have told us that we were not expecting and we've learned uh, with this. People said, hey, Daniel, I came because I saw a course of Salim or Vern or Jack Daly or all these thought leaders. And I came and got the videos and then the coaching calls and the coaching calls was great because we have a lot of live coaching calls to help you implement what you learn. If we don't help you to implement what you learn, we didn't do our job. Our success rate is implementation. But at the end they said, but what really gave me value is the community. You take me through a process of implementing an improvement in my company with 50 or 80 other people like me having the same challenges like me implementing the same as me. And we share it, we help each other how to implement better. And I'm working in a medical company in the US and then I talk with a CEO in India in a manufacturing company. And then I talk with someone in Hong Kong in a service company and then someone in Latin America in an agricultural company. And it's crazy how similar we are and how similar challenges we have with people and leadership and communication. And you give me the space so I could communicate with them and have the similar language and process that we're implementing to help each other. And that's when they get the value. This great community of leaders doing the same changes in their company. And they love it. It's amazing. I mean, you see that when you're coaching an executive team, the whole team going through it, or when you're coaching a round table. I hadn't thought about it in a virtual community in the same way, but I can see that so I was talking to, to Peter in Holland and he reckons maybe 50% of the learning comes from the people in the room rather than, rather than from the framework. Fascinating. I tell always, every time I take a church workshop, I said, guys, there's more knowledge in the room. You have to build systems and procedures in your speaking and everything for them to be able to bring that knowledge. And that will bring a lot. So in the, in the class that we give, we have a, a, a hybrid method of learning that we, you get videos directly from the thought leader. And then you have coaching calls with a coach that is an expert on how to implement that methodology in your business. And then you have all these tools and technology to help you do it. But then we have masterminds and we put students 10 by 10 all over the world with a coach to moderate a discussion. And we guide that discussion how they implement. And it's crazy. People finish the masterminds and they said, hey, can we stay as a mastermind? This is going to take us a year to implement or whatever. We want to stay connected. So they stay connected and help each other. And it's amazing when you see, because as you say, look, the best days and the worst days in business are always people. Yeah. And so those challenges are universal, right? You know, there might be some cultural nuances, but it's always the people, customers, staff, suppliers, just it's all. And people say, hey, will this work with an Indian, a company in India with 2,000 employees or a company in the US with 20? And I'm like, yeah, we all have the same people problems. Same communication problems, same leadership problems. Everything is people. We're all in the people business. Yes, and I've never visited a company yet where the staff said, we get praised too much here. And really, if they could just stop telling us what's going on because they're just communicating too much. And so, you know, just these things are just always the same. 
do you still do one to one coaching with clients as well, or are you just all committed to? I do very little. I have five clients that I implement, and I continue to just keep five and rotate them every couple of years. And I really help them elevate their mindset. I usually have a couple of calls with, with each CEO per month, and then sometimes visit their company. But yes, I still continue doing a lot. One, I love it. It's really my passion. I, I, I get the most juice out of coaching a company and helping them go to the next level. But two, it keeps me very close to reality, and it allows me to build better programs and classes and systems for entrepreneurs and, and mid-market companies. So I will continue doing it all my life. What do you think the difference is? Is there a difference in the person between you know, doing it online versus face-to-face? Is it a price point? What, where do you see the, the sort of the trade-off between? So as an example, I teach two-day workshops in here. I'm in Mexico City here because I teach a workshop tomorrow and Wednesday. And some people still prefer live. But what I tell them, hey, in two days, I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to blow your mind in two days. But then you're going to be Thursday in your office and you're going to sit down on your computer and say like, wow, how do I implement this? If you go online, we could really build a three-month, six-month implementation plan and walk you through week by week on how to implement it. I strongly recommend online. I think it gives much more value. But a lot of people just can't do the discipline of doing it online. So they still prefer to do it offline. And there's some people that said, hey, Daniel, I don't care how much it costs. I want you, you to be inside my company doing it yourself. Perfect. I'll do coaching. But I really believe there's types of companies and people for the three models. And as a service provider, we have to be able to provide what the market needs. And I think we need to do it the three ways. And I think we've proven that there's enough demand online today, but I think it's just going to explode. When all the frontiers get closer or harder to get visas, and all the issues that we're having in the world, I think we're going to have to go more resource to go online. And I will tell you, we have numbers of our clients that go online and offline. The ones that go on online, their implementation, their company is way higher than offline. And here I'll give you a number. So going to scaling up class, we have a class online uh, scaling up. We get over 70% completion rate. And for us, completion rate is that you saw the videos, you came to all the live sessions or saw them recorded, and then you write your one-page business plan, complete, and then you send it to your coach and have a one-on-one call with the coach. If you don't go online and finish your one-page plan and don't have your coaching call, for us, it's not complete. And we get over 70% completion rate. And just to compare, the average class online that people purchase and then finish is 15%, one-five. Why? Because of the discipline and the rigid of the class. But most importantly, people begin seeing results on week one and they get excited and they see results in week two and week three and they just stay through the program. It keeps them going, keeps them motivated. So I strongly recommend online. I think in the next five years, people are going to realize that the online model will give you better value from what you pay in the long term. There's a difference to do coaching. And I, I think coaching is going to even get bigger because having a third person in your own company helping you do it is by far the most powerful. But not all the companies could afford that and none of the companies could do that. Yeah, fantastic. And and what I do is I, I give your tools to my clients that I'm working with to so trying to support them outside of the time that, that I'm spending with them. And that's a compliment, as you said. Hey, compliment to the to the live coaching, then you could do some compliment online, but still keep the, the sessions. And I tell my clients, 
where I give you the most value when you invite me to moderate your strategy sessions. Just having a third person that is an expert on managing strategy sessions, just take them to the next level. People tell me, Daniel, when we, we do it without you, it's like we have, we're okay, but we don't get that excited. No one has that much buying to the strategy. When we have a coach, someone like you or another scaling up coach that really knows how to moderate a meeting, we just come out with so much juice, so much passion to be able to implement that. So I think that makes a big difference. Well, it also means the CEO often is the person, if there's no third party, the CEO is trying to participate and moderate. And that's really difficult. It's really hard to do those two things well. And the team members, because the, the CEO is in the middle, they just say, well, I'll do whatever the CEO wants. And they just accept things instead of debating them. Yeah. You talked earlier about top grading. So maybe you could give me your thoughts on A players versus B players or team players. I've realized uh, and discovered the last 20 years of being a CEO. You could change the market. You could take away the internet. You could do whatever you want to my company. If I keep my team and I have a good team, I could do whatever I want. I've seen companies raising millions and millions of dollars and they don't have a great or strong team and they just get destroyed. So the team is the most important thing. And in scaling up as an example, we always start with team. If you don't have the right team, then you cannot do anything else. Jim Collins said it best. First, get the wrong people out of the bus, get the right people on the bus, and then decide where you want to take the bus. So for me, the team is the most important decision out of the four. If you have a great team, they will build a great strategy and execute it correctly. They will always have cash. A great team will always give you great results. So let's go back to talking about the team. And I've realized that the first step of getting a great team is hiring them at the beginning. <laughs> like, yeah, people just, they hire whoever they like, and that's not necessarily who you need. So for me, scaling up, sorry, uh, top grading, really show me a framework to have a very detailed hiring process that will guarantee that we'll hire uh, the best people. And here I'll give you an example. Some months ago, uh, I heard through a family member that a niece was looking for a job. And I said, hey, I love my niece, she's amazing. I will invite her to apply to my company. So in my company, we have a process that she has, someone has to be interviewed three times with three different employees with a very rigid process following top grading before I interview them. And just if they pass the other three interviews, they could be interviewed by me. And I get a call from my three employees that interview her. I said, I want to give you this call all together because we want to tell you that your niece cannot come into the company today. We all love her to death. She's an amazing person. She's not the right person for the job position that we need. So even though she's a niece and she's a fantastic person, she doesn't fit. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, she's my niece. Like, I'm the owner, right? <laughs> and they said, no, you, you told us that this is a process and we're going to explain to you exactly why. And they walked me through the process, everything they did, and they showed me the results. And I was like, okay, thank you very much. I called my niece and said, I love you to death. I'll help you in any way I can. You just cannot work my company today. The job position that we have and the capacities that we need, you don't have those. So thank you very much. And that was it. There was no fight. There was nothing. Well, what I really like about that story is that everybody that interviewed before you had a veto. And so often that happens. I, even, even in my own experience, somebody asked me to interview you know, a new senior colleague. 
And I said, under no circumstances should this person be hired. And they went, thank you for your feedback, but we've hired them anyway. And you're just like, God, what does that do? Just It's like a kick in the teeth. It's like, thanks very much for wasting your time. I may as well have just tossed a coin. If you don't think my opinion is of value, don't ask me. And if you do, don't tell me you don't value it afterwards. Terrible. So I'll but- tell you a quick story on, on that. Uh, so they come a client that I'm interviewing, that I work with. They like this new head of, uh, of sales. And the guy was, came from really amazing corporations in the U.S., and had an amazing training. So this company was very excited that, to bring all that knowledge into the company. And the guy came to the workshop. I didn't interview him, but he came to a workshop. And after the workshop, they asked him, hey, what do you think about scaling up? And what do you think about Daniel? And his comments were very harsh. He hated the model. He hated me. And he, he was very critical to me. So imagine the first call that I have with, with the CEO. He said, well, he didn't really like you. And he expressed really negatively against you and the model. And I was kind of taken back, kind of, kind of hurt me that he spoke bad about me. And I said, hey, just tell me why he did not like me. And he said, well, he thought you were too rigid and you, you relied too much on your processes and your system and your team, and you have to be the owner and you have to take decisions as the owner. And he thought that, that you relied too much on your systems and procedures. And I told the CEO, I'm sorry, but this guy's going to fail. If he believes that he's above any system or procedure, it's going to be gone in the next six months. And the guy said, but he's perfect. Everyone loved him. And I was like, <laughs> let's wait. Time will tell. And oh. exactly five months into it, he was gone. <laughs> Man, you know what? Hiring, it's funny. There was a, the, last year or the year before, there's a great thing in Harvard Business Review about salespeople. And basically what it said is that only 15% of salespeople actually regularly hit their number and hit their number in multiple companies time and time again. Quite often when I'm working with clients and they're hiring salespeople or sales managers or sales directors and they're failing again and again and again, often they're just not asking the right questions. Because if you were a coder and 85% of the if like you know, if 85% of the code you wrote didn't work, like people would notice. Or if you're if you're the accountant and your and your books don't balance, I think sales is one of those rare jobs where you can actually just be a bit shit most of the time and keep getting another job. And if sales isn't what if sales isn't your background, then it, it's incredibly difficult to hire good salespeople. And anyway, good salespeople are so rare, they're not looking for a job. If you place an advert, typically good ones aren't going to apply. Have you got any tips or tricks or things that you do to help help attract great people, whether they be sales or other employees? So first, you always have to have a bench. Like, like any team, they have the team that is playing, and then they have a bench of people waiting and be ready to play. So as a, as a CEO, I always have to have a bench. So I always have a list of 20, 30 people that I would love to bring to my company. And I have my list, and I reach them often, I call them, I invite them, all that. So I'll give you an example that happened recently to me. There's an entrepreneur in Argentina that I really admire. And I told the guy, if you will be the CEO of my company, my company will probably be doing 10 times what we do. That good, I think, yes. But I think he was not doing the right product and he was not in the right industry. And I told him so many times, if by any day you would like to get a job and work for someone, please call me first. One day I told him this on stage. I was on stage giving a workshop and he was sitting, taking the course and I said it in front of everyone. And he knew he had it very, very clear that I love his knowledge and all that. And one day he calls me and said, hey, this thing that you've always said that I do really, really well, my right hand is leaving. 
and I told her she has to work for you. So she's ready, just connect with her. And I was like, just tell me how much, I'll hire her. If it comes from you and you said that she has it, and the guy said, yeah, and she's ready, I already told her about you, and she's ready to work for you. So I, I couldn't get him, but I got one of his employees to work for me. Yeah, look, all that, you know, that sort of getting out of the execution cash cycle as a CEO and having the time to build a bench, it's just absolutely critical, isn't it? It's like, you know. The CEOs that really scale, I see them dedicating 40% of their time to hire the, the best people and keeping them happy. That's your job. If you get your first level of great team members, everyone expert in what they do, and they're happy, and they have everything they need to be successful, that's it. You're done. You don't have to do any, any more work. But getting that line right, it takes a lot of time and discipline. So focus as the CEO of getting that line running. When you have each one really good, help them build a system to run their department, communication, strategy, all that, and then let them operate. Let them go. Daniel, there's a couple of questions that I always ask all the guests I get on. The first one is, if you went back in time, knowing what you know now, where in your career would you drop and what knowledge would you take back with you? Hiring. I always try to hire the cheapest person uh, <laughs> at the beginning. And I realized that there's a quote uh, by an entrepreneur in the US that said, if you think hiring an, uh, an expert is expensive, wait until you hire an amateur. And now you will see how expensive that is. So try to hire the best person in the market and figure out how to get the money to get them in. Once you get the best person in the company, he will pay for themselves 10 times if they're the right person. And two, be much tougher with numbers. My dreams and my ideas, I sometimes put them on top of my numbers. And sometimes it's okay, but most of the time you have to see your numbers. Your numbers tell you a story. You have to really understand your financial statement and read what it's telling you. And I have so much, many hours of calls and have a hard time with entrepreneurs that I coach to get them to read and understand their financial statements. I really believe once they understand the financial statements, they will take much different decisions than the ones they're taking today. But they're taking the wrong decision because they don't have the data or they're not reading the right data or not analyzing it correctly to be able to take the good decisions. So get the right team and listen to your numbers. Fantastic. The thing about the right team is that I think people think that talent is a bell curve and actually it's a power law. So whilst you, whilst the, if it's putting things in a box, the best person might be 2x, the average person. When it comes to something mental, the best person could be 10 times or 100 times better than the average person. And they're not 10 or 100 times more expensive. And so taking the extra time to find the best person is just when, when you get the right person you can't believe how it feels like you don't believe that could be done before until you get that person in the position yeah amazing um the other thing is i'm after some book recommendations so exponential organizations from salim ishmael significantly changed my life and he has a new book called exponential transformation i think is the best innovation model out there today to bring innovation and, and the future into your company. Scaling up is my rock. That's how I run my company. I, I've been a CEO running with Scaling Up for 19 years, and I will never drop it. It's the basic or, or my framework of how to be a great CEO. Top grading, 
it's a horrible and boring book to read. It's <laughs> amazing once you run it. Hello, Brad. I, I, yeah, sorry, Brad, but yes, I love it. It's, I, I'm a, the biggest promoter of top grading, but it's a really hard book to read. It's detail and process. It's a big book. It's a big book, but the psychology that Brad brings in the book is amazing. So it's a must read by a, by a CEO. It's just a tough book to read. Multipliers change the way I, I see leadership from Liz Weisman. Yeah, and the, and the new edition that she put out last year, that's a magic. Daniel, thank you very much indeed for coming on the show from Mexico City. Thank you, Dominic. I, I always uh, an honor. Thank you. All this information and more can be found at dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find show notes, additional reading and links related to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of the Melting Pot newsletter. The simplest thing to do is to sign up to my subjectively, not crap, once a week newsletter, where I'll update you on what I've been up to, the most interesting articles I've read, and all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. Social, you can find me on Twitter at Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse. LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me and share your questions and comments. Thanks for listening.